Hello, PAP11 podcast listeners. Welcome back to our show. We are here today with your hosts, April and Mike. And if you've been enjoying our series, we really invite you to head on over to our iTunes page and give us a few stars, four or five if you'd like, and maybe write a short review. It only takes about maybe 30 seconds or so, but that really helps us in the standings of the iTunes categories. And our goal this year is to make it into the top 150, and we can't do it without you. So if you could do us that favor, that would be wonderful. And our show today is a pretty original one. We have yet to talk to somebody that is practicing alchemy, and we are inviting and speaking with Aetherius today. Aetherius is a practicing alchemist and instructor in the Western Mysteries. He is the creator of the Transcendence Oracle and teaches through interactive presentations that give spiritual seekers a solid, accurate foundation to understand initiatory aspects of the Western mysteries on both physical and spiritual levels from the ancient adept point of view. The initiatory paths of instruction that he teaches are seership, practical alchemy, and deep magic. And believe it or not, we only got a chance to cover alchemy during this podcast, but we think that you're going to find it very interesting. It was some new information for both of us, and we learned quite a bit during the show. So we'd like to welcome Aetherius to the show today. Well, welcome, everyone, and we would like to welcome Aetherius to our show today. We have some great new topics of information that we're going to discuss, and Aetherius, welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So we usually like to start off to find out what people's stories are. What brought you into this world of alchemy and magic and meditation? Um, I'd like to kind of hear how you got into it. Well... I, uh, from a very young age, always found the topic intriguing uh, to a point of, um, you know, when other kids were in school eating lunch, I was skipping lunch trying to dig through the library to see what I could find on the subject. So I guess I was a bit of a geek. Um, (laughs) That's just the way it was. Um, When I was 17, I left home to find a teacher. I moved to a big city, I moved to Houston, and I actually found a teacher that was a real adept, um, which is a rare thing in this world. And that teacher was able to give me a pretty solid foundation in a lot of things on a magical level that a lot of people are not really afforded to see or experience or have any kind of tangible, palpable reality to things that they believe but don't get to experience. And he was able to demonstrate things that I'm not yet able to demonstrate, but because of what he was able to show me, it gave me a conviction that magic was real. Um, not the, not necessarily the version that we see of it on TV, but the truth is, is that real magic is really not that much different from a lot of what we see in special effects when real magic happens, it's it's not a, oh, I think I might have seen something. It's a, a holy crap, I didn't realize it was that real. Um, and so from a young age, I had the, the conviction of that. And that is what set me about on the quest for other things. My conclusion was is that if there was real magic in magic, there had to be real alchemy in alchemy. And... Uh, eventually I found teachers that were adepts in a few other disciplines over the course of the last 25 years and they gave me uh, each of them gave me bits and pieces that fit into this puzzle that eventually made a complete picture uh, gave me kind of a working template through the Western mysteries in a in a way that's rather unique it's it's kind of my path but also it's not my path because it's certainly not new but it's uh, from a viewpoint that's much older than a lot of the stuff that circulates in modern publications. So I have slightly different viewpoints, but then there's a lot of places where things overlap as well. But because of being instructed by real adepts, I'm able to explain things in a way that makes sense to people. It puts it in context so that they can make a picture. Uh, One of the the benefits to having someone that can make a template out of experiences is that many people are having 
all kinds of experiences. And the more uh, that people expand consciousness, they come into unique experiences, experiences of gnosis and uh, personal deep experiences that are very much out of what we would call ordinary. But the problem is, is that those experiences don't necessarily come with a context. And so people have experiences, but they don't really know how to plug them into the template. And um, that leads to a lot of confusion about what those experiences are and where the value in them is. And with a what we would call a more proper template as far as the how things work, the epistemology of how everything fits into everything else, um, those things can become really powerful and transforming for people. They can also become a handicap because people will have these amazing experiences but they don't know how to replicate them. And the the replication process is part of what you learn in mystery training. Otherwise, you're doing what I call peekaboo with the universe, where you get to experience something one time and you know that it happened, but you have no idea how to go back and make it happen again. Um, and that's because certain uh, levels of consciousness in the universe want you to know that there's more, and so they play this peekaboo thing. But it's up to the individual to go on a quest to learn how to access higher levels on a consistent basis rather than just haphazardly. So that's what mystery training is, uh, is geared towards. It's, it leads one to levels of what we call in the West illumination. In the East, they call it enlightenment. Western tradition refers to it as illumination. I teach the Western mysteries, but I decided to kind of go in a, a non-polarity mode and refer to it as transcendence because that removes the need to label it as East or West, even though the modalities that I teach are Western mysteries. So to me, transcendence is a function of alignment. If you accept the the hypothesis that we all have a higher self and that there is a divine reality and there is intelligent design and all of those things which is very much part of a hermetic paradigm um, and required for real magical initiation then uh, one has to begin to learn how to communicate with that higher self and that really is an alignment process and so one of the things I say all the time is that transcendence comes from alignment because if you're not lined up with it, then you're not doing your purpose. And if you're not doing your purpose, then you're not going to have flow. Um, and flow is what everybody's really kind of after because that's what brings peace and um, more tranquility into people's lives. The, the difference that I see between what's being taught in the popular level of things and the deeper mystery level is that with all of the modern law of attraction training that's going on, which is important because a lot of people have never come in touch with any of those ideas, but a lot of it is taught from the angle of, you know, if you just focus on these things, you can manifest these things and then you'll be happy. And while that might be exciting the first few times that you succeed in doing that, eventually it's going to be just as empty as it was before because it's just stuff. It's stuff that you can't take with you when you leave this level of reality. And it doesn't really uh, help you evolve spiritually. Whereas if you do mystery work, whatever you achieve, whatever levels you attain, they go with your soul when you leave this world if you don't complete the great work in the current lifetime that you're in. So to me, the mysteries are precious and they are uh, an entirely different way of life. They're a different way of looking at things, and they're a much deeper level of reality. But they don't come with blind belief. Uh, one of the things that's great about a real teacher in the mysteries is, is that you can question everything, as opposed to a lot of modern religious paths where questioning the guru is um, considered naughty. <laughs> so uh, it gets you in trouble and... Um, 
those are more devotional paths and there's nothing wrong with them. If that's what someone's spirit really leads them to, then that's what they're supposed to experience. But at a certain point, they're on, on certain kinds of paths, understanding exactly what you're doing and exactly why you're doing it is really of, of vital importance. And that's one of the things that proper mystery training can give you. For instance, um, knowing yourself. Uh, that was a, a thing that was written over the doors of all the ancient temples. Know thyself. And know thyself doesn't mean, you know, having a, a good idea of your likes and dislikes. It doesn't mean you know you like blue and you don't like red and you like uh, potatoes and you don't like lima beans and or you're a cat person and you're not a dog person. Those are all great things to know about yourself, but that's not knowing yourself in the sense that they meant in ancient mystery schools. In those schools, what they meant was knowing your parts, knowing that you have multiple pieces in what you perceive as you as one thing, because you're not really just one thing. And you have to know where those parts come from, what they do and how they function while you're using them in the lifetime you're in, and where they go when you leave this level of reality through death and you go someplace else where those parts go, where they come from. And what happens uh, to each of them is something that comes about from understanding the alchemical process that's built into everything. So the three main streams of the mysteries that I teach are seership, practical alchemy, and what I call deep magic, which is initiatory magic. It's not about manipulating the outside to get stuff. It's about manipulating yourself on a spiritual level in order to evolve into what humans have the embryonic capacity to become. And that is basically the mystery training. Mystery training in a nutshell is that humans have this built-in embryonic capacity to become uh, so much more and it's, it's, we're hardwired for it. The, the, the mystery training basically is, a, is an older way of talking about it with its own jargon and its own way of uh, framing it out that leads to uh, kicking those evolutionary aspects into gear. It's an alchemical mechanism that comes about as a result of consciousness on a certain level and kicking certain processes into functioning on a higher level. And that's really what mystery training is about. So it's not necessarily about the ideas that people have about being spiritual. People think that being spiritual looks a certain way and that it acts a certain way. And my experience is, is that it's really about consciousness and expanding consciousness in particular ways. And it doesn't have to look in any particular way from how we see it on the outside. It's really just about consciousness and the spiritual forces that one is awakened to on a deeper level. Now, can you go in more depth about what alchemy is? If no one has ever heard of that, um, can you describe what alchemy is and then how you do use that in a part of your training and how you use it in your everyday life? Sure. Um, well, alchemy is a word that's been around for a really long time, and it has lots and lots and lots of connotations. Um, and because of that, and for, for many, many reasons, there are um, some ideas about alchemy that are not really accurate, which is to be expected since it's a mystery training, and they don't call it mysteries for no reason. Um, there is a lot of... Uh, uh, information that really has to be given by instruction from someone that really has direct experience. Otherwise, you're kind of groping in the dark. But alchemy, from a higher level, is simply the mechanics of how everything exists. Everything that exists came into being through a particular process or a mechanism. We call that mechanism Sometimes it's referred to as a spagyric uh, mechanism, but really it's all just a different angle of saying alchemy. The mechanism is one of the things that's really important because it allows us to see how things uh, are, 
held together while they're in what we call reality and how things come together, how things separate and uh, how those different processes and aspects can be manipulated and used to create spiritual medicine, which we call a quintessence. The reason we call that spiritual medicine quintessence is because of the ideas of the ancient four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And they're not the literal earth and air and fire and water that we think about, but they're called philosophical precisely because they're something else. Those four elements, when they're obtained and purified and recombined into one thing, which is a tricky process, are then what we call the fifth element, which is why it's called a quintessence, because quint means five. So on one level, alchemy is about understanding how everything fits together. On another level, on a practical level, alchemy is about making quintessences, which are spiritual medicine. And the reason we make the quintessences is because each of them has a an, uh, an effect on our being. It is uh, a psycho-spiritual medicine. So some of them are rejuvenatives. Some of them uh, work on different levels and do different things, interact with different aspects of consciousness. And um, many of them are are correctives for the imbalances that we have in our psyches. So dysfunctions, different patterns and things like that get pushed out by quintessences. So it, again, they really are spiritual medicine that brings us more into alignment uh, with what a purified consciousness should be aligned uh, to, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, those those medicines have a uh, a long history of kind of being talked about. The one that everyone knows the most is called the Philosopher's Stone. And the idea behind the Philosopher's Stone that people are the most familiar with are that it turns lead into gold. And there are different groups in alchemy teaching that say, well, that's not true. And then some of them say it is. And some of them say practical alchemy doesn't exist. And for those of us that do practical alchemy, we know that that's not true. But these are ideas that have been bandied about for the last 150 years. Uh, and there's still great debate over them. But the reason it's important is because when you learn practical alchemy work in the beginning, you're working in the plant kingdom. And you get to take a plant and you get to separate it into its philosophical principles. Um, we call them salt and sulfur and mercury, but they relate to the body and the soul and the spirit of the plant. And even that concept is a little foreign and weird to people sometimes, but once they uh, wrap their, their mind around the fact that everything is mind, Everything that exists came from one mind, and it all separated through differentiation and recombined to create what we call reality around us. So because everything is mind stuff, when you wrap your, your own mind around that, then you realize that really what you're doing, even if you're doing physical laboratory alchemy, you're still manipulating a certain level of mind. It's just that you can see it and touch it and feel it. And each of those physical levels has a non-physical level that goes with it. So those are the mechanical parts. But what you get to see is how the body and the soul and the spirit, once they're separated and purified, you get to see how you put them back together. Because they only go back together one way. And they only go back together if you have the right proportions and the right process. So... That when you, when you get to see that on a laboratory aspect, then you know how it works within your own being because this is a hermetic art and in hermetics, if it's true on one level, it has to be true on all levels. How it's applied can look different and you have to figure out how it's true on that level and how you apply it on that level, but it's either true on all levels or it's not really a truth in the capital T sense of the word. So... 
alchemy training affords us a couple of things. It affords us to be able to see how things are actually able to be taken apart, put back together, and made into a spiritual medicine. But those spiritual medicines then have an initiatory effect on consciousness. They expand your consciousness to where you can understand more of alchemy. So we start off in plants, but then we work our way up to minerals and metals, and those substances are more powerful, which is why we don't take them in the beginning, because your nervous system has to be prepared to be able to ingest spiritual medicines of a highest dose. The ultimate spiritual medicine from the viewpoint of alchemy is what we call the Philosopher's Stone, which is basically a physical substance that is a, a rather like a chariot for pure God force, which is why it transmutes things on a, a much more powerful level. And that is made into a medicine. That medicine is called the elixir of life. And that is what is the, the ultimate uh, longevity pill, basically, and from the Western point of view. It was discussed in Eastern traditions, but it was kind of downplayed over a period of time uh, because it was focused more on, in the East, they focused more on mental powers and the CDs and the powers that can come about as a result of expanding consciousness. They kind of downplay the physical elixir side of it. But even if you read about the Mahavatars and the powers that they have, from in Eastern tradition, they all say that they maintain their longevity and their power by uh, the, the processes that they do mentally and what they call the little golden pill, which is their version of saying the Philosopher's Stone or something very close to it. So these traditions are ancient. They've been around for a really long time. And the words get bandied about, and they're used in popular fiction. They're used in Harry Potter. They're used in lots of places. But the reason that they've stuck around so long is because there is truth underneath it. There, there is a, a tendency for things that are true to stick around in a perennial way, even if we lose sight of what the actual truth of them is. And uh, to answer your question, basically alchemy training is one aspect of the mysteries that is one of the most neglected because there's very few people that understand how to uh, do those processes in a way that's really alchemy. If, you're, if you don't really understand the purpose behind what you're doing, then you're just basically back to chemistry. Um, chemistry leaves out the mind component of things. And, of course, their objectives are different. So they're not really after spiritual medicine. They're after something else. Alchemy has a purpose of giving you a solid blueprint and a template, and that's what people are missing for the most part. And the beautiful thing about alchemy is, is that because of the way that it works, it can be its own spiritual path. You don't have to do any other work. You can just follow the alchemical path. But if you are inclined to other spiritual traditions, alchemy cleaves into every one of them perfectly because it's all about the, the mechanism and the blueprint, the blueprint underlying where all those religions came from in the first place. So alchemy has no conflict uh, truly with any religious path. There are Christian alchemists, um, and, and some of them are what we call Rosicrucians now, um, there are pagan alchemists, there are all different kinds of alchemists that follow different spiritual traditions because they have affinity with them, but they can see within the alchemical process uh, the truths of their own spiritual beliefs are mirrored. Uh, we, we talk about um, the the triple aspects of different things all religions, most religions have a trinity of some kind and in alchemy we refer to the trinity as salt and sulfur and mercury on a you know, philosophical principles but those things correspond with the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost and Brahma and Shiva and Vishnu, they all line up in a way where it's kind of like taking 
religion and stripping off all the specifics and the dogma and you're left with all the working parts and you can just see how things function and then you can understand any religion you look at if it's if it's truly based on true experience and truth you can look at it and see okay this part of their religion is is a result of this particular alchemical aspect and you can see where it came from and that in itself is illuminating and liberating because you can then see it from a higher level. So an alchemist can be comfortable pretty much in any religious environment because even though they see it from a higher level, they can also see the truth in it. Even if the people that are saying it don't see the truth in it, the alchemist can. So it is. Um, it has a lot of benefits on many levels. The majority of it is about consciousness, though. So my question is, in trying to understand the elixir of life, is this, like, why do people take it? Is it something that you are taking in order to have a more spiritual experience, like an ayahuasca plant, or is this more of something that you would ingest daily, like a vitamin? Oh, no, not daily. <laughs> very, very, very strong. Um, well, so here's a primary difference in between ayahuasca, which is what we call an entheogen, and entheogen is a plant that naturally contains within it substances, uh, which are generally alkaloids, that uh, we have receptors for in our brains, that when we ingest them, they allow us to open to a particular level of consciousness and experience it. And a lot of indigenous shamans use ayahuasca because it allows them to access the level of reality that they work in when they do their shamanic work. The, the, there's a lot of differences between shamanism and a lot of alchemical practice, but then there are a lot of overlaps as well. One of the, the key points is that <clears throat> quintessences are made by art. They don't just hang out in nature. Uh, quintessences are basically the mother spirit of a thing, so those ideas line up with shamanism. However... Shamans go into the spirit level of the world and they connect with the spirit level of the plant. And while an alchemist can learn to do that, the alchemist's work is about making the quintessence. The quintessence is like the physical uh, substance that functions. Uh, it's like a chariot for the mother spirit to ride in, but it's all contained in this medicine we call a quintessence of whatever plant or whatever substance we're making it from. And when that substance is ingested, it's rather like the mother spirit is then released into your own spirit. So it expands your consciousness in whatever way and with whatever powers that mother spirit has and uses within nature, you become fully and rather more permanently connected with those things rather than only being able to connect to them when you do a shamanic journey and connect with the mother spirit that way. So while the working parts within the overall template are all there, the alchemist and the shaman are approaching them from a different viewpoint, usually for a very different reason. Shamans are, uh, by nature of of what they do and their responsibilities in their tribes and the things that they do. They use spirit medicine to heal people and to help restore people to wholeness. And when someone is out of balance, it's generally the shaman's job to go into the spirit world and figure out why and then find the spiritual medicine that will restore it and bring that spiritual medicine back to the person whether it's a plant or whatever it is, they go into the spirit world, they communicate with the plant spirit, then they have to go out into the real world and find that plant that will then do what the plant spirit said, and that's what brings about a healing of their patient. So their work is extremely pragmatic. It's, it's what they need for survival. And they've learned these techniques over time, and some of them are very illuminated and some of them are just doing it like, okay, I got to go find the plant spirit. I got to go do this and I got to go do that. And they haven't reached a deeper level of understanding yet. But because it's so practical, 
they're useful to their people. The alchemical point of view is, uh, if it's a real alchemical point of view, is always about illumination. It's always about evolving to the next level of what we can become. And so our purpose in any of those things is to make spiritual medicine that expands our consciousness and allows us to make a permanent connection rather than a temporary one. So there are some strengths to each side. They all have something that they can learn from each other. Um, the elixir of life is made from the philosopher's stone. It's very. It's, it's basically a an extremely diluted level of the philosopher's stone, and when taken in a dose, um, causes rejuvenation because it's a spiritual medicine. And that's why it's renowned for its transmutation ability, because metals are looked at as evolving their way to gold. Um, there's very little difference between lead and gold. So if you feed spiritual medicine to a metal that's on an evolutionary track and it's in one state, pushing its evolution into another state is what a universal medicine does. Because it, the the Philosopher's Stone is a universal medicine, meaning it's not made from, it's not made to work in one kingdom. There are different types of medicines that are made from the plant kingdom and some from the mineral kingdom, some from the metallic kingdom, and they're not the Philosopher's Stone, but they have their own purpose and function and they do something similar but on a more limited level. The distinction with the Philosopher's Stone is that it's universal. So whatever you give it to, it's going to, it's going to evolve that substance. So that's why people can take it as medicine, and that's why you can use it on metals. The reason it's renowned for its metallic transmutation is not because alchemists, real alchemists, were not attempting to make a bunch of gold. Real alchemists wouldn't give you three nickels for, you know, an excess of gold. They just don't care about those things. A little bit of money is fine, keeps you comfortable, but the rest of the time you're busy doing your work. You don't need to go shopping. You don't need lots of stuff. And the thing is, is that when you make the Philosopher's Stone in order to prove that you really made the Philosopher's Stone, you do a metallic transmutation as proof that it is the medicine, because if it's not the medicine that you're after, it's probably still poison, and you don't want to ingest it, or you'll die. So you test it on the metal to see if it transmutes. That's why the myth, or not the myth, the story of the philosopher's stone turning lead into gold is so prevalent, because that's the test. It's not really what they're after. What they're after was the medicine that can be made from it. And the Philosopher's Stone itself is made from substances that come from gold. So you still have to have gold in the beginning. You, you can't really get around it. And um, the myths have just become twisted over time. And of course, those, that level of information was not something that they were just going to hang out on a, on a bush somewhere for everybody to know and understand. So they were quite happy for everybody to be confused about it. But now we're reaching a level where uh, what alchemy understood and conclusions that science is coming to, eventually they will merge back around again. For now, there's still mystery paths, but eventually they will merge back together. And uh, then it will be more commonly understood information, and they'll just look at it as an aspect of physics that other people understood that we just didn't grok on a modern level yet. The thing is, is that's still quite a ways off, and if your plan is to sit around and wait for that, you're kind of um, <laughs> you're, you're wasting your time uh, in for for the level of where we are now. If you want to learn how to do those things, and you've got to set about learning how to do it, the the key per, uh, purpose of alchemy is to accelerate evolution. The alchemist doesn't, it's, it's from one viewpoint, the alchemist makes the quintessence. But on the other hand, it's not the alchemist making it. It's simply functions that exist within nature that the alchemist knows how to manipulate. Really, it's aspects of nature that you turn loose in order to do their thing. And the acceleration of nature on that physical level can also be applied to accelerating the nature 
of what a human has the capacity to become. So all religions that exist on some level talk about a body of light. They talk about different ways that, that they're obtained. They talk about saints and prophets who obtained them and ascended. They talk about things, and it's mostly in reference to very pious people who were probably more inclined to sit around and contemplate spiritual things and do intense spiritual work. But that mechanism is built into everyone. So different traditions call it um, the body of light. Some of them and, uh, call it, in, in Eastern traditions, they call it the diamond body or the rainbow body. In Christianity, they call it uh, the glorified body or the robe of glory or uh, I think even the paraclete is a, a version of the, the same idea in Greek. Uh, there, across the board, are ancient testaments to the fact that we have the capacity to do this. It's just that the religions say you don't get them until you die. But what alchemy teaches is that in order to make something into a quintessence, into a one thing, you have to have all of the parts. And the physical part is part of all of the parts. So if you don't succeed in doing that work while you're still in the physical body, you have to wait until the next time around because you need the physical vessel. You need the body and the soul and the spirit, and you have to combine them into one thing that then becomes what we call the stellar body. So in alchemy and in, in magical tradition, you come to learn that you have this physical body, you have a lunar body, and you have a solar body, which is another way of saying a body and a soul and a spirit. In order to make the stellar body, that glorified body of light, the, the three bodies have to come together into one thing. That is alchemy on a personal, uh, psycho-spiritual and physical level. So first you have to make the solar and the lunar conjoin into one thing, and then you have to make those conjoin to the body, and that's how you get a stellar body. That's how you evolve into the glorified body of light. And without an alchemical understanding, you're kind of left to groping in the dark as to how exactly you get to the glorified body of light. And it's very popular in New Age uh, rhetoric at the moment to just say, oh, well, we already have everything. We just need to remember. And while that's true on one level, we do have everything, but we have it on an embryonic level. Because man is a simulacrum of God, meaning the entirety of everything that exists, every archetype that exists on a universal macrocosmic level exists within man on a microcosmic level. That is the whole as above, so below idea that everybody bandies about. The thing about that expression, as above, so below, is usually that they're leaving off the last part of that sentence. And that sentence comes from what we call the Emerald Tablet. The Emerald Tablet of Hermes instructs us in the art of alchemy, and it's the principal hermetic document. And that, that sentence in the Emerald Tablet after it goes through the as above, so below part, basically says, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. Everybody leaves that part out. And the miracles of the one thing cannot be done without alchemy. So these are the pieces that have to be put together through mystery training for somebody to understand themselves, to know themselves, to go back to what it says over the temple doors, these are all the pieces that people need if they really want to go on that journey. If they're ready to do the great work or they, they want to explore what that means, these are the things that they need. And they're the pieces that are generally <clears throat> not well known. They're out there. They're scattered across everything. Putting them get together in a template that makes that information useful is the part that's rare. And that's the part I have spent the last 25 years coming to understand. And that's the part that I teach now to help people accelerate so that they don't have to dig in the dark for 25 years like I did uh, to get to that level of information. 
Now, these elixirs, are they ingested like in a ceremony setting or are they legal? They are legal and they don't need to be ingested in a ceremony setting. Um, They're just ingested. Um, You know, I take them in doses before I go to bed at night. Um, It depends on what they are and why you're taking them, but uh, they are... Uh, the thing, the, the beautiful thing about uh, one of the contrasts between um, what we talked about within theogens and shamanic tradition and alchemical preparations is that, um, and theogens are generally, uh, for the most part, classed as hallucinogens and um, some sort of a scheduled uh, drug on the U.S. drug schedule and are very restricted or limited and it's because of the alkaloids that are in them. The, the plants that we use in alchemy don't have any of that. And so when you have psycho-spiritual psycho experiences as a result of ingesting the quintessence of lemon balm, which is Melissa, which is a rejuvenative, you know that it's got nothing to do with it having any kind of uh, psychedelic compounds in it, because there are none. Uh, the quintessence, the beauty of a quintessence is, is that it functions on an entirely different level than the plant over which it is a mother spirit. So you can make a tincture of lemon balm and it does certain things for the body, but there's no actual real quintessence in there. You make a quintessence of lemon balm, it does something entirely different. Um, and there's no toxicity in the vast majority of of stuff that you can do in plant work. Now, there's a lot of things that I haven't done yet uh, in in terms of uh, particularly making a quintessence out of ayahuasca is something that's fascinated me for quite a while. I'm interested to see whether or not uh, that quintessence actually contains alkaloids. What it does as a quintessence may be very different from what it does uh, as a plant the way that it's normally prepared. And so one of my projects, <laughs> the number of projects that I have, I'm calling the Plant Alchemy Project. And the idea behind that is, is that the more people I can teach to make plant quintessence uh, in, a, in a simpler method, then the more of us there are to make preparations from different plants and find out what those quintessences do. Because... A tradition, long-standing tradition, hands down a very short list. Paracelsus left us a short list of five plants that do, um, they all basically do the same thing. They're all rejuvenatives. And the reason that was a, an important function was because, uh, especially back in that time, uh, information and, and, and knowledge was very hard won. And by the time you got to the age where you really started to understand something that could be applied on a useful level, a lot of times you died because lifespan wasn't as long back then and life conditions were harder. And so longevity has long been the bane of alchemical pursuit. By the time you get enough wisdom to start applying things on a significant level, you had to check out, you know, you died and you'd have to wait until you come back and start all over again. And that's really not efficient. So alchemists set about finding ways of discovering rejuvenatives, and he left us a short list, and that's why we use lemon balm. That's the, the plant, Melissa officinalis, and it is a rejuvenative, and that's the first plant that I teach people to make because a lot of the other uh, alchemical work is, is harder, it's longer, you have to be a lot more devoted to it, and you should be taking a quintessence while you're doing it. Otherwise, you're just kind of wasting the time you could have been taking a quintessence. So when I teach it, I make people start with that process. A lot of alchemical teachers don't. They make people basically uh, go through a lot of other processes to kind of, I don't know, it's a form of control. They, They kind of weed and filter out people who you know, they think may or may not be qualified to learn. They all have a different viewpoint of doing things. Uh, to me, I believe that if someone's higher genius is 
cool with them learning it, then they're going to be led to the right place. And if they're not, then their higher genius has control over making them go someplace else. It's not up to me to decide whether someone else is or is not worthy of learning the mysteries. So I kind of uh, hand that over to my higher self and I allow them to work it out on whatever level they're up there working it out on. But the quintessences are really important and that's one of the distinctions between shamanic tradition and alchemical tradition is that the substances we use have none of those components that you can find and say, oh, that's why these do this. There are no alkaloids in them. So uh, it's, it's a convenient thing because you know when you take them and you have those experiences that it must be because it's quintessence, not because of some compound in the drug that we have a receptor for in our brain that then gives us experiences because we take it. So there are some really key differences between those traditions. And none of, neither one of them are, are, it's not to say that it's right or wrong, it's just those are the differences. Great, thank you. I know that Mike and I are also really curious to hear about your philosophical death and how you came to learn about, if I'm pronouncing it right, your Nomen Mysticum name? Nomen Mysticum, yes. Um, well, it's tradition within alchemy tradition and magical tradition that when a person reaches a certain level um, that they take an alchemical name. I was always resistant to the idea because, uh, you know, I'm very pragmatic. I, I, I don't stand on ceremony. I don't, um, I'm just, I'm just uh, hardcore practical <laughs> because I was taught that practical is what works and practical is, what re is what's real because what works is what's real. So, uh, the idea of, you know, taking a spiritual name and doing all those things was something that I, I didn't really have a whole lot of affinity with. But when I worked a, a particular initiatory process to uh, uh, basically forge a stronger communication channel with the higher self in, in magic and alchemy, well, in magic it's referred to as knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel, which is something Aleister Crowley named, but it's really not a guardian angel, it's your higher self. In alchemy, we refer to that as your higher genius. Uh, and everything has a higher genius. But in people, they function a little bit differently. And in order to evolve and to align with it, at some point, you have to learn to communicate with it directly. In uh, Kabbalistic terms, you're learning to directly communicate with your Christ self, the aspect of, of yourself that's connected to God through this hub that is Christ consciousness, essentially. And when you do certain operations on a, on a magical training level to be able to come into contact with that, it's a very powerful force. And what happens is, is that uh, what can happen and what did happen in my case was that uh, it burns off a lot of what is in you that doesn't need to be there it's a purification process but that burning off is a death process it's philosophical death um, you, your physical body acts as a vessel for the alchemical process to happen between your soul and your spirit and things that are not uh, you know, patterns, programs, substances, whatever you've got in you that is an obstacle to the, to the, to the merging of the, the soul and the spirit has to be burnt away. In practical alchemy, um, the, there's a calcination process to burn stuff out and to purify it. In the psycho-spiritual level of the work, the spirit, the light, itself is a ferment that comes into you and burns off stuff that's not supposed to be there. And that death process is philosophical death. Uh, in my case, it lasted for three days and um, was incredibly intense. I could barely move my body. Uh, it took me, what normally took me three seconds to get down a flight of steps would take me 30 minutes. It was, it was this strangest um, thing. And of course, it, 
it highly disconcerted everyone around me. Uh, at the time, I was living on the third floor and uh, of a building in Brooklyn, and I had a, a business and office on the first floor, and I had employees down there, and I had to go down there and tell them what I needed them to do. And when I got in the door, they just stood there and just stared at me, and they were just terrified because I looked like hell, you know, um, as I expect that I, that I would have. But I had no other way to communicate with them, so I had to go down and do it. And it took me 30 minutes to get down the stairs. And, um, you know, they were, were very concerned that I was ill. And I'm like, no, I'm not ill. I'm just dying. You know, it's kind of to be expected. I didn't know it would feel like this, but this is how it is. And then it took me 45 minutes to get back up the steps. Um, so when you're in that state, you can still function. It's just incredibly difficult. And most people, I think, probably just lay there. Um, I'm just stubborn. So I had to get up and do something and found out that navigating in that condition is incredibly difficult. It can still be done. Um, so while I was in that state, I became aware of that name. And uh, so that's when I started using it. I don't hide behind it. I, you know, my birth name is Michael. Um, I don't have a, a thing about it. I'm, I'm not using it to hide behind it. I simply became aware of it. And um, ethers are levels of reality. So, so while a lot of alchemists take a name that is very alchemical, like uh, lapidus, for instance, which means stone, or um, you know any of the other uh, contemporary alchemists that succeeded in certain levels of the work, they took names that were very much alchemically based. But because my path and my experience is equally balanced between magical path and alchemical path, I think that's why my name has more to do with walking levels of reality, because that's really what that name means. It means walker of worlds. It means someone who can move between different levels of reality. And while that is my name, I cannot claim that I've fully mastered that process yet. I have transcended my body. I cannot yet do it at will. Um, it's a function of, of evolution that we are all uh, bound to work towards at some point. It's just that I've gotten a little bit of a head start and some insight. But uh, until a person can transcend their body at will, they're not yet an avatar what they would call an East, an avatar is a person who can transcend their body at will. I can't do that at will yet, although I'm getting much closer. I can feel distinctions and shifts, but I'm not quite there yet. But I do understand the process, and I can help other people begin to do the work that will get them further along in the process as well. So that's the difference between... Uh, knowing and not knowing how things fit together and work is that while you're doing the work, you can actually help other people. And that's my main purpose is to help other people, people that really want deep spiritual work, that have a, a thirst that can't be quenched by anything else, have to do evolutionary soul work. And it doesn't look like what a lot of people think it looks like. It's very different and... You don't hear a lot about it uh, in the more mainstream metaphysical or occult community because nobody's really talking about it. It's not that there aren't people that know. They, there are some people that know, and they're kind of closed-lipped about it, and they're not putting it out there. And they kind of operate on a bit of an elitist principle, and I don't, uh, I just don't hold to that. Again, I leave it to the higher genius to decide who should or shouldn't come into contact with certain information, and I'm not going to uh, put up a firewall. There's been a firewall for, for centuries, millennia, between man and their evolution and the mysteries, and it's kind of time for that firewall to go away. And my purpose is to bridge the gap between the magical communities and their alchemical understanding so that they can have a more efficient evolution through magical work. There are other kinds of traditions that do different levels of soul work. They do 
other things, but those are not uh, my ballpark, really. What would be the one thing you would want people to take away from alchemy or magic? Maybe your last message for them. Well, there's many levels that you can approach all those things on. And essentially, whatever level you approach it on is the level it's going to meet you on. Because they are all sentient processes. Um, there's a, a spirit and intelligence that goes with every one of those processes. And it knows what your the purity of your intention is. If you want to study magic because you just want to get power over people and manipulate things and do stuff, you can you can get a little bit of that, but you're, you're, there's a glass ceiling and you're only going to get so far. And in the end, it's going to come around to bite you. Um, if, if your intention is to learn so that you can evolve, so that you can serve, then you're going to get much further with that process. The, the seeking of illumination for the sake of illumination because it's there to be experienced and because it's, it's what we're meant to do so that we can evolve to the next level is its own reward. It's not about getting anything on the side, although the, the, the curious thing is that on the side there are lots of powers and benefits that come along with that pursuit that kind of benchmarks on the path. And um, anyone that really wants to quench the spiritual thirst they have in their soul, that that illumination path is the only thing that's going to do it. Um, there's lots of things you can do that you can find interesting that will keep you busy for a while and they'll work to a point, but after a while you will burn out because they don't have that deeper level. And the deeper level is what people are really seeking in their souls. It's what their spirits want them to do. It's just that they have to get to the point where they're ripe enough to be spiritual fruit that the universe can pick and say, okay, you're ripe enough to do this now. So I would say finding paths that lead to real illumination is what people should be looking for. The paths that I found that work for me, that I that I know how to help other people with, are seership and alchemy and what I call deep magic, which is magic on an initiatory level. So, the purpose of all three of those streams is illumination, and any one of those paths can be approached as its own path. But when they are used in combination with each other, then it really accelerates things all the more. So. I allow people to approach things according to their own affinity, but I also encourage them to learn aspects of other things because it accelerates their own understanding of whatever path they do have affinity with. And uh, I think that's the best pointer that anybody could give. Great. And would you like to let our audience know where they can find you for more information about the classes and the private trainings that you do online? Sure. My website is transcendenceworks.com, and there is a newsletter there. Um, I'm giving free seership training online. It's called the Open Seership Project. The information on that will be posted in a couple of days. And uh, I give the free seership training because it's something that, while it's profound, it's relatively simple for people to do. And if they do it and they follow the instructions, then they can come to have their own direct experience of something that's quite phenomenal. And once they have that, then they'll have the conviction for themselves to know that these things are real. And after that, then they can decide whether they want to study things on a deeper level. Sometimes people are not ready for it. They come right up into contact with something real and... Uh, they run the other way. But for people that are ready to not run the other way, it's a very good uh, step into an entirely different level of experience. Great. Thank you so much. And I think that's a wrap. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. 
If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.